Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I wanted us to think about the kind of, the time of year that we are in. This is a photo that's going to come up now that I took in Ammonford this week, and it signifies something. Can anybody tell what that photograph is? Anybody? Water. Incorrect. Autumn. There we are. John, you were right. I just need my ears cleaning out. Yeah. That is a picture of some of the trees at the top of the arcade in Ammonford, and you can just see well, I could anyway. I don't think my photography skills are that exceptional. But the different colours that the trees were turning. There's greens, there's yellows, there's golds, there's reds, there's a couple of browns. And in that picture, I think, encapsulated for me is this idea of change. Change is in the air. Um, I wasn't planning or preparing this, but you just think about the weather that we experienced yesterday compared to the weather that we've experienced today. You will get that impression, won't you, that change is definitely in the air. Um, And that change is just a normal rhythm part of life, isn't it? Um, I'm not a tremendously good botanist or whatever you would need to be, but my understanding is generally that trees, or trees of this sort, need that change in order to live. They couldn't stay green-leaved all year round and survive. And with our weather systems, It would be nice in many respects if it was summer all year long, but so much of what we take for granted in our country wouldn't work, wouldn't happen, unless we had those natural rhythms and cycles of changing seasons and changing weather, would they? If it was winter all the time, we'd probably all get quite fed up. But even if it was summer all the time, life just wouldn't work. Change is necessary. Change is part of what we need in order for life to thrive. And in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of 2 Samuel, we're going to see significant change taking place. Um, Change in the life of one man, but change in the life as well of an entire nation. John was preaching with us two weeks ago, and he took us to the point where David had been crowned king of all Israel. If you've got your Bibles open, chapter 5, this is where we are. Verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you that led us out and brought us in. You, and the Lord has said to you, you shall be the shepherd of my people. So they took David and they anointed him and they made a covenant with him. And David became king over all Israel. Um, there's a little verse then, verses 4 and 5, which kind of give a summary And that's a little clue to us that what we're seeing here is an important, pivotal point, isn't it? David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And then in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is serious, significant change. David's gone from just being a military leader at the start of the book, and even an outcast of a military leader, to being king over a small section, a small um, corner of the nation of Israel, to now being king over everything. 
The rest of chapter 5 charts David taking the center of power, the capital of the nation, where he has exercised the authority from Hebron to Jerusalem. You see, it's summarized. It's really quick in 2 Samuel. It's um, kind of played out a bit more in uh, Chronicles. But you see, verses 6 down to verse 10, the story of how David and his army took Jerusalem, and it became not Jerusalem, the city filled with um, their enemies, but David's city, the city of David. This is where now people were to look and to focus as the center of the nation. There's more change happening. But it doesn't take long in the story, if you scan down to verse 13, to see that in the midst of all this change, some things never change. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he'd come up from Hebron, and he had more sons and daughters there. It's change, massive change, upheaval completely and utterly on the one hand, but on the other hand, in some of his actions, some of his attitudes, and some of his behaviors, sadly, there is no change. And that's actually a picture of a place or um, a way in which change isn't happening, not just in David's life, but in the life of some very important people in the Bible, of how the kind of the mess that some of the celebrities in Scripture get their families into can cause real pain and suffering and trouble. We're going to get to some pretty outrageous stories in 2 Samuel where these sorts of actions just unravel themselves and cause hurt and pain and despair for everyone. But David isn't thinking up new ways and means of causing pain and hurt. They're the exact sort of things that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those kind of people practiced, causing pain. There's not enough change, you might say, in that sort of situation. And then chapter 5 ends with a story of two military victories. David and the armies fighting against the Philistines. And again, it's kind of deja vu. God's people being confronted and attacked by enemies. David, the one leading the charge, but ultimately being given victory by God himself. And so there's this really weird mix in chapter 5 of significant change and the same old, same old. Some of which is good, some of which is bad. Chapter 6, though, probably for most of us, is a weirder and more wonderful, terrifying, uh, curious chapter. And it's the story of how David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant up into Jerusalem. It starts like this, chapter 6, verse 1. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. He arose and he went with all the people who were with him to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. And the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And we think to ourselves, this is, this is a really strange story because we don't have an ark anymore. Any kind of story in the Old Testament which is valuing an object, uh, something which is to be regarded in a special way, seems really odd to us. 
because we don't have trinkets, we don't have trophies, we don't have physical things which we come towards um, to worship God. We have access to worship God by the Spirit in all places, in so many different ways. We worship when we come together, we worship when we disband and when we go our own ways. We worship when we sing, we worship when we stay silent. We worship when we fast, we worship when we feast. And so any story that begins focusing in on an object seems to us probably a little bit strange, but the story gets even stranger. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hands to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Not only... Is this a story about an object which seems so distant and unrelated to our lives? But we read it and we think, why on earth is God acting the way that he acts in this story? We've trained ourselves, hopefully, not always to read the actions of the characters in scriptures as good and bad. But surely when we read how God acts, that should be an example to us of what is right and wrong, shouldn't it? Well, side note, yes, I think it it should be. Um, But this whole idea that someone has gone to catch it from falling on the floor and smashing it, and God kind of flies off the handle and kills him. Well, we're not the only ones who think this is odd. David, it says, verse 10, was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Why? Because he was scared. Because he was afraid of what might happen. That there was now not just this object of God's closeness with the people, of God's promises to the people in times past. But here is a symbol of God's, I don't know, power, his might, his holiness, that if they dare step out of line, that judgment would come on them. Actually, chapter 6 is another chapter of significant change. It's a chapter which shows us David's intent, at least, of changing how the uh, civil kind of power, the authority of the king, and the spiritual power, the authority of the priests and of, and of God's word and the law and things like that, are to be brought together. That's what the whole endeavor is about, is joining together two things that had been separated. There's change happening. But even in this story, there's an example of change, which is good change, and change, which is bad change. What we most likely don't pick up on is the fact that how they handle the Ark of the Covenant is really quite disturbing. We think, should it be with hands? Should it be with a car? Should it be this way? Should it be that way? Do touch, don't touch. The Ark has been transported on a cart already once in the book of Samuel, right near the start when it had been captured in battle and transported to the Philistine territories, when they got scared of the ark, they sent it back to the people of Israel. And how did they send it? They sent it on a cart. As David and his men prepare to unify the spiritual life and the civil life of the nation, what the author's trying to show us is that they're acting really like the pagans, the the foreigners, those people who don't know God and, and don't wish to worship God. God had already instructed how this ark should be handled. Who should handle it? It should be the Levites, not just any old people. 
And so in two ways, they are ignoring and changing an aspect of how they worship God and how they show reverence towards God and His symbol of His presence towards them. David is saying, do you know what? In the past, perhaps that's how uh, God through Moses told us to treat it, that specific people should handle it in a specific way. But now any of us can handle it any way we want, even if that's copying the Philistines. And God clearly says, no, there are some things that you are not allowed to change. Story carries on. God blesses the house of Obed-Edom where the ark rests. And after a couple of months, David's fear and his anxiety of bringing the ark into the city of David, into Jerusalem, into his fortress and into his home changes. He realizes that while God is someone to be feared and treated with reverence, ultimately it would be a good thing to have God's presence there with them at the heart of the nation. And so they actually this time do things a little bit differently. They hunt out a couple of Levites. They get them to carry it rather than putting it on a cart. They start um, sacrificing um, with it. But there is more change that's introduced. And it's this time that the change is a positive change. This time, it's not just um, the sacrificial system of Moses. Every step, couple of steps, they slaughter another animal, they slaughter another couple of animals. But what David introduces is sung worship, noise, praise, singing and dancing, the kind of things that we today associate with worship. That is a change in how they act and behave in front of the ark. And actually... The book of 2 Samuel suggests that that is a really good thing. If you read the rest of the history of David in uh, Chronicles and Kings and places like that, you'll see that this was a major development, not just in this story, but in how the whole people worshipped God. David was the one who said, right, from now on, when we come to worship God, there will be specifically singers and musicians and psalms and songs and hymns that we offer up to God. It was a change in how things were done. And it was a positive change. And what I want us to see this morning as we think about the necessity of change and of how sometimes change is bad and how sometimes change is good is that ultimately change isn't the driving factor. Change isn't the driving factor in these stories. But it's change in the right direction and I want to use a different word to describe it and to help us think how we live our Christian lives and that is growth. You can describe all of these things as change, but sometimes in our minds, change suggests leaving something else, swapping out something else, abandoning something else. But growth is change in the right direction. Growth is building on what has gone before. Growth is almost always a positive thing. So think about some of the things that have changed in these stories then. David becoming king over all of Israel, not just Judah and Hebron. That, that change is not David abandoning that family, not abandoning that place. That change is a growth given to David by God of his rule, his authority, and his care. It's change, and it's change in the right direction. It's not abandoning what's gone before, but it's incorporating even more. Taking 
the civil center of power from Hebron to Jerusalem, isn't abandoning the people and the place that he was reigning over before, but is expanding it. It's growing where he can exercise that authority from. This weird and wonderful story of how they interact with the, the ark, of how they are to deal with it and how they're not to deal with it. And and the new thing that David introduces of singing and dancing before it, not just um, offering sacrifices, it's growth. It's not abandoning what they've done before. It it, it can sometimes seem like that. But in verse 13, it says, And those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. They sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and they danced. It's not changing, it's not abandoning the ways that God had called them to worship in the past, but it's growing it, it's expanding it. Introducing this uh, form of worshipping God with song, with noise, with the words that they speak and the sounds that they make. It's growth, isn't it? It's building on what went before. So I want us to see this morning that in these stories we get a glimpse of change, but change isn't the main thing. It's growth. Growth. It's change in the right direction. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a famous chapter in 2 Samuel. It's um, a chapter in which God makes a wonderful promise to David, and it's a promise that's picked up throughout the rest of the Scriptures then of a promise that is made to all of us. And to set the scene, it begins with David now kind of established. All the change of chapters 5 and chapter 6, of the kingdom coming to him, of the kingdom growing, of the ark being moved, of uh, victory over his enemies in battle and things like that. David now is is in a, a safe and secure place. And as he's sitting on his throne, he's wondering to himself, like, he's he's reflecting, he's contemplating. How did I get here? Like, how is it that I could be in this privileged position? And what should I do as a result? How should I respond to that? So he turns and he speaks to Nathan, a prophet in the land who's very close to him. And he says, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar. Like, they've built this wonderful palace for me. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan says to the king, go, Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David is reflecting, and it's a pretty decent reflection, isn't it? That I have been blessed so much by God, and yet this thing, this symbol of his presence and his kindness and his goodness towards us is just sat out there in a tent. David has this really good, right inclination of wanting to do something in response to the grace that God has already showed him. And Nathan hears that and says, do you know what? Go for it, mate. Why not? Let's do something. Let's build a house for God. Let's make sure that where he lives is at least as good as where you live. But that same night, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Would you build me a house to dwell in? Well, yes. Seems fitting, doesn't it? You have given us so much, and we just want to offer something back to you, God. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. 
I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, This is what the Lord of hosts says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. I've done that in your life, David. I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. I've done that, David. You're sitting on that throne, and you are right to reflect that I'm the one who has put you there. And guess what? I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. What are you thinking about that you are going to do something for me? There is still so much that I am going to do for you. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, and not a literal house, not like I like the, temp, uh, the palace that you've already built, but there's a better one to come for you, David, but a, but a dynasty, a family name that is above all other names. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a literal house for my name. That's going to happen, and we all know that ultimately a temple, a physical temple was built. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so God is making this promise to David. And if we look at it through the eyes of change, what could be going on? Up until this point in the story of the Bible, the promises of God have been pretty clear to Eve, that she would have an offspring who would come and put things right, who would crush the head of the serpent, to Abraham, that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed, that a family, uh, a nation would be born as multiple, as um, big and as multiple as the stars. And so if we're looking for a, a picture of change, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel might present us with a little bit of a question mark. Is this now God saying, forget Abraham's family, forget the promise that I've made to others in the past, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Eve, to all of them? Is God now changing and saying, do you know, I found someone better that I want to bless and I want to bless the world through? I found David, a man who is after my own heart, and this, instead of there, is where I want goodness and kindness to rest. There are some things that we do want to change. In our lives, I'm sure if I gave us two minutes now, there would be so many things that we would be able to raise our hands and say, I need this to change. This isn't good. I want it to change. The promises of God, they're not something that we want to change. We don't want God to give up on what he has already said he was going to do and change his mind and start acting in a new and a different way. In fact, one of the things that we celebrate throughout the scriptures and uh, Christians have celebrated for the last 2,000 years is that God is constant, that God doesn't change, that his promises, that his word to us doesn't change, that if he said in one instance that he will do something, he will do it. We're not looking for change when we come to chapter 7. 
But one of the marvelous things we get is growth. It's growth in how we see and understand what God is going to do. Because now we have a picture and a promise, not just of someone who is going to be a blessing to the world, but someone who is going to rule the world. Someone who is going to rule the world in a sort of David kind of way. The end of chapter 8, David's reign is going to be summed up by being someone who administers justice and righteousness for all people. David, before chapter 7, his reign has been summed up as someone who has given uh, victory against enemies for all people. And so now God's promise, far from changing, is growing into someone who is going to be that kind of king. Side note, whenever we come to the Gospels and people seem to be confused about who the Messiah is going to be, you know, we were in Mark's Gospel and Peter made that wonderful declaration, we believe that you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. It's this promise here that really they're thinking of, of someone from David's line who is going to defeat enemies. So when Jesus tells them, and I'm going to die, they think, well, how can that be? How can that be? Because they see it almost as a change in God's promise. That we're not looking for someone, an offspring of Abraham anymore. We're not looking for someone, an offspring of Eve, who's going to crush the serpent's head. Um, We're not looking for someone as it will get developed in prophets like the, um, the book of Isaiah, who is going to suffer for our sakes. They come and they focus in and they know this promise to David and they say, that is it. We need to see how God expresses and grows our understanding of the same promise he's always been making, of sending an offspring, someone from the line of Abraham, but someone too from the line of David, like David, who is going to rule and to reign. To, to be over a kingdom that is full of peace and justice and righteousness. I want to ask us the question then this morning of change in our lives. Are we changing? Are we growing? Possibly the first question that we need to ask is this. Are we heading in the right direction at all? Because no matter how much effort we put into changing, no matter how much effort we put into um, changing the circumstances of our lives, if we are heading in the wrong direction, it's all for nothing. The very first call that is on each and every one of our lives is to repent, literally a word which speaks about changing direction. Are we people who are following Christ? Are we people who are following God? Are we people who are seeking to live under the authority of this promised one? Or are we people who are still fighting and striving after our own selves and our own reign and our own rule and our own authority? What direction are you heading in? If you're heading in the right direction, well, then here's the encouraging thing from chapter 7. That the grace that is behind you, because David has seen so much grace in his life up until this point, is what's caused him to sit on the throne and to ask the question and to come up with this plan of building a temple for God is nothing compared to the grace which is ahead of you, which is God's promise to David, that he will build him a house, a dynasty that will last forever. So what direction are you heading in? Do you need to make that fundamental change? 
switching around from following yourself to following Christ. But then to ask the question, are you growing? Because nowhere in the Scriptures does it ever seem that we should be satisfied with staying where we are, of having perhaps made that change, facing in the right direction, but then staying planted and rooted in that same place. I think it was Wynne Jones who once said, you are not a tree. Did he say that? He did, didn't he? Yeah, you are not a tree. Which, round of applause, hats off to him, is a fine observation. But what he meant by that is, uh, trees can't move. They can't shift. They can't go forward. They can't progress. We are people that are not designed to be stuck in the same place for our entire lives, but are to be moving and to be growing. Growing in how like Christ we are. To be, to be growing in our Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit is, is listed in the book of Galatians. Something that's to be growing in our lives. To be more loving, to be more joyful, to be more patient, to be more caring. Growing in our knowledge of Christ. Let me ask another question. Who is Jesus to you? If you've already made that change, bump, shift, how can you grow in your knowledge of who Jesus is? Because surely you've come to see the truth about Jesus. Let's just say you had to choose one way of describing Jesus to you, a primary way. There could be loads of different ways you could see him or understand him and still have made that fundamental turn. You've seen Jesus as the one who brings forgiveness. I spoke about that when we were taking the bread and the wine. He died for you while you were a sinner. Paul speaks about being justified, about being forgiven, about being made right. Let me tell you, if all Jesus is to you is the one who earns you forgiveness, you're not wrong, but you're missing out on so much. You need to grow in who you understand who Jesus is. You need change in your relationship with him. That change isn't abandoning what's gone before and saying, oh, he's not that to me anymore, but seeing he's that and so much more. Maybe Jesus is the one this is, this is kind of the thing that helped you change round direction to see the truth. That he's the one who sets you free. That you were in bondage, in slavery is the, is the language of the scriptures. To your own selfish desires. To sin. To your own way of thinking, to conforming with the world around us, which ultimately leads nowhere. And Jesus came in and said, you know what, I've got another way for, for you. You don't have to live like that anymore. In fact, you shouldn't live like that anymore. Come follow me and you will be free indeed. You've made the shift round. But if that's all Jesus ever is to you, you are missing out. You need to grow in your knowledge and your experience of him. Perhaps you've come to know Jesus as the one who recreates who you are. So you're not necessarily thinking in terms of being forgiven you remain, and kind of dirty things are taken away. But you've come to see Jesus as the one who literally can make you into a new creation. Instead of being that old, sinful self, you are the goodness, the perfectness of Jesus. 
You see Jesus as that, and it's wonderful. If that's all you see, you're missing out. You see, I'm listing these. I'm actually giving you options for other things that you could be adding in if you're the other ones. You've come to know Jesus as one to whom you can be open and honest with. I've written down in my notes, a trusted confidant. Someone, no matter what you're going through, is always there. Do you know what? Jesus is that. He is always there. He is always 100% accessible. No matter where we are, no matter what we're up to, we can call out to him. If that's all he is to us, we're missing out on so much. Jesus is our example. That's another way that we view him, isn't it? Jesus is the one who comes to us and shows us what life is supposed to be like, not just through the things he tells us to do, but just in the stories of how he interacted with people. We do that all the time. We see Jesus as one who not only tells us to be compassionate, but shows compassion. And not only tells us to forgive, but kind of provides forgiveness. He's the example. We want to know what it is to be really human. We look to Jesus. We see it embodied, exemplified. He's our perfect example. If that is all Jesus is to you, then you don't need to change. You need to grow in who you understand him to be. You are missing out if you stay in that one place. You know, we'd be missing out if we didn't have the promise made to David here. We'd be missing out on our understanding of what it is God is doing in the world, what it is God is doing to reconcile, to bring back together a sinful humanity and a perfect God. We'd be missing out on what it means for God to be bringing heaven to earth, where he is to where we are, the mingling of the two. Unless we grow, then we may as well be heading in the wrong direction. When David realized this, the end of chapter 7, when he heard from Nathan's mouth what God was promising, of how he was growing the picture of what he was doing, when he saw how God was so much more than he'd assumed already, when he heard the, the amazing news that the grace that he was going to experience was going to even outweigh the grace that had already gone before in his life, what did he do? He said, thank you. And so I want us to spend just a couple of moments now saying thank you to God together. Thank you to God for what he has done for us in Jesus. Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died. He has risen to life again. He has ascended to heaven. He is all of those things that I have mentioned already and so much more. I want us to give thanks together for that. But I also want us to ask God to help us to grow. I want to ask God to help us to see not just who Jesus is to me today and who Jesus has been to me in the past, but who Jesus is. We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago when we were going through our series on the nature and the character of God, that he is a full life's worth of pursuing him and learning and developing in him. He is so much more than we can ever see or hope or imagine, but that means we've got a life of growth together. So I want us to do something just a wee bit different, and that is to stand together and pray together and to really work our way through David's prayer of gratitude in chapter 7. But 
use it as words for us to give thanks to God and to ask him to be at work in us. So can we please stand together? King David went in to the tent where the ark was and he sat before the Lord and he said, and we say together, who are we, O Lord God? What is our name that you have done anything for us? And yet, it was a trivial thing in your eyes. It was a trivial thing for you to do. To show us kindness and grace in giving us life at all. What more can we say to you other than thank you, Lord, for what you have done and what you continue to do for us? You have promised to make things right. You have promised to make things new. You have promised to bring light into darkness, Lord, and we thank you that in Jesus Christ you have done that. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you continue to keep your promises in our lives, that you will help us more and more to see and to understand and to enjoy and to celebrate the full breadth and depth and height of who you are, of who Jesus is. Lord, we pray that you will continue to use us to lift up your name in this world, that you will use your spirit at work in our lives to to declare to those around us just how good and wonderful you are. You have said that you will build a house. And so we are praying to you this morning, Lord God. You have said that you will bless the nations, and so we're praying to you this morning, God, that as we grow, so this house would grow. That as we grow, so that blessing would grow, Lord God, around us. As we grow, that your kingdom would grow. You have spoken of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of grace, of mercy, of love. And Lord God, we seek it in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.